Take your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. We are moving through rapidly now the last portion of the book of Romans. We have worked on the theology. We have worked on the practicality of that theology. And we're continuing now in the living that out. What does it look like? What does it mean that Christ has paid the price of our redemption? What does it mean that we are in the process of sanctification? And what does it mean that one day soon we will be glorified? Well, Paul says that that is all true. And it's all true based upon the power of who our God is. And then he said as evidence of that, notice that God is not yet done with Israel. And then he ends that in chapter 12. He comes to the point where he says, Therefore, be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, pleasing to God, which is your reasonable act of service. And so since then, we have been understanding what it means. What does it mean to live in this way? Well, today Paul gets very pastoral. He gets right to the heart of the issue, and he's dealing with an issue that the people were dealing with. And in many ways, it reflects some of what is going on in the present-day church. The present-day church culture in our country finds itself in transition. The church of a generation ago was, by and large, more, much more legalistic, uh, holding hard and fast to different aspects of Christianity. In reaction to this, the church has gone somewhat through its own 60s-type movement where they have shed the, the weight and with reckless abandon they have left everything behind that was legalism. But unfortunately, they've also left behind all of the theology, all of the doctrine, all of the truth as well. So isn't there a middle road? That's where our Christian liberty finds us. You see, the church in which Paul was addressing was a church that had Judaizers who were very legalistic, who were hard and fast to the structure of the law. But then he had these Gentile believers who had no understanding of the law, and they came to Christ with having no understanding of uh, Jewish traditions or history, and all they had was faith. And so you had two sides, two issues to deal with. In Christ, the Spirit prompts us to realize that neither position is always right. So, how do we reconcile liberty in Christ? And at the same time, slavery to Christ? Because you are called both. You are called to Christian liberty in Romans. You are also called as slaves of Christ in Romans, in this book that we are dealing with. So, how do we reconcile the two? What does it mean to be a slave with liberty? And that's our question. Joyful, or living in joyful Christian liberty. And the idea that I want us to focus on this morning is this. The joy and the practice of Christian liberty, reminds us that we belong to Christ. You see, you have something that the world does not. You have the ability to please the Lord, if you know Christ as Savior. The world, the secular world, that does not know Christ, does not have that choice. They are slaves to sin, and to sin only. They have no opportunity to please Christ, until they come to know Him as Savior. So with the Christian, it is truly a joy, and a practice of Christian liberty to be reminded that we belong to Christ. As we prepare to move into a rather lengthy section in the book of Romans, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, as we bow our heads before you today, we thank you for Christian liberty. 
Uh, we recognize that sometimes this manifests itself in different ways. It's sometimes frustrating as we look at other believers who are dealing with or struggling with these other issues. But Lord, I pray that we would recognize the answer to the three questions that Paul is about to ask us. And we recognize that the answer to all of them is that we serve you. We are motivated by you. And we are judged by you. Lord, in light of that, may we recognize that life within the body of believers can be unified, can be joyous, and can be filled uh, with everlasting uh, peace and contentment. But in light of that, we recognize that there are other issues that we must stand firm on. And so give us a balanced approach. Help us to understand what Paul is saying here. Help us to apply the truth of Scripture to our hearts and to our lives, that your name may be glorified in each of us individually and all of us corporately as a body of believers. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning we return to Romans, and rather than reviewing a whole lot, I'm uh, assuming that you have, uh, can go back online, you can listen to those messages, you will take the time to do so if you need to review. Uh, otherwise, you'll be in the Word of God, and you will spend time in the Word of God reviewing where we have been, especially since chapter 12, having the theology of the first 11 chapters. And so today we dive right into the practice of our liberty in Christ. Because of the work done for us, which Paul has spelled out in the doctrine portion of this book, we have freedom as believers like no one else. No longer is our motivation sin, which condemns us all the more. Now we are able to please the Lord. So Paul begins the trek to the end of the book by revealing our liberty and expressing how we ought to live now. In light of the first 11 chapters, what is this going to do in your life? Well, when you understand the freedom that you have in Christ, now all of a sudden there is immense freedom. There is immense liberty. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at liberty as Christians. And so through this, some illustrations are given. And some evidence that Paul really asks three questions of. And those three questions are these. Who do you serve? Who do you serve? The next question is, what motivates your actions? The final question is, who's your judge? Who's your judge? So who do you serve? What motivates your actions? Why do you act the way you do? And then, who is your judge? And again, Paul is getting right to the heart of a matter. This is a very real life issue for the Roman church. This is something that they're struggling with, not just when they fellowship together as believers, but they're struggling with as they run into each other in the marketplace. Something that they're wrestling with as they see Jewish believers and Gentile believers all trying to mash together. How is it possible that the body of Christ can be united across cultural, across geographical, and across uh, secular societies? How is that possible? If you were to go down to any club in our city you would notice something. They're all the same. We don't cross very well. In fact, there was a recent news article uh, that a a very uh, black neighborhood in Chicago is now turning very Hispanic. The Hispanics are kicking out uh, the the African-Americans who used to live there. Why? Because in a secular society, sorry, I got my stutter back, uh, in a secular society, we struggle to mesh ethnic groups. We struggle to mesh uh, those which are different from us. But in Christ, that is not true. In Christ, that is absolutely not the case. 
And so we're going to see how all this works in, in conjunction with Christian liberty. And so who do you serve? Who motivates your actions? And who is your judge? Let's begin in verses 1 through 4. And the first illustration that is given. The scripture now says, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, I'm going to tell you this. There has been much confusion, and there has been much made of verse 4. That is not true. So we're going to get to that here in a moment, but I'm just setting that up so that you understand where we're going. But first, we look at the illustration. What is the first illustration? Paul moves from theology to practicality. Uh, What do you do... Uh, when you're, you're when you're in the process of, of life, what is it that you do? What are your convictions? In this case, the believers in Rome consisted of two groups: Gentiles who had no background in matters pertaining to the Lord, especially not of the Old Testament, and the Jews who still remained faithful followers of the law of Moses. Despite the Jerusalem Council, uh, we recognize there is major division in the church, and the Jerusalem Council was called to address that issue. Is the gospel really going to the Gentiles? This is unfathomable. We can't understand this. And indeed, James, the half-brother of Jesus, presiding over the Jerusalem Council, says, yes, indeed, Gentiles have received the gospel message, and yes, indeed, this was God's plan all along. But still the church remains divided. Because now now you have uh, the practicality of filling that in. James added the theology, now you have the practicality. And so Paul is now adding some practicality. You see, the, Rome, the Gentiles didn't even consider the dietary laws of the Mosaic Law. Well, what does that matter? Why would, I, why would I obey the dietary laws when I've been enjoying my pork roast all this time? Well, as we move through this, you'll recognize that these two groups are going to struggle. But the Jews, thinking themselves as righteous, would only eat according to the law. They would only eat those aspects that were agreed to by the law. Now, we do the same thing as we come from various backgrounds. We consider our way uh, in these all-moral issues to be God's way, right? Uh, consider the differences in cultures. When you go into one culture, one thing's acceptable. You go into another culture, another thing is acceptable within the church. Well, does it really matter? These are all-moral issues. And yet, if you challenge these and uh, you address these issues, all of a sudden there is division in the church. There's division in any kind of body. Well, the point that Paul is making is, uh, this is a real problem. And are all moral issues really that important in the body of Christ? So Paul is going to challenge us. And I'm going to tell you, I told Lisa this morning, I said, you know what, I'm going to make everybody mad this morning. doesn't matter which side you're on. Uh, your toes are going to get stepped on this morning a little bit. Uh, because we're, we're, going to, we're going to wrestle with this. Because ni- none of us are right all the time. And we may have issues that are all moral in nature that are not theological that we esteem to the- theology. This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about, uh, in, in my class, we were talking about uh, Eve's sin. Do you know what her sin uh, came from? When she first twisted God's words. And when she said, God said that I should not touch it. She brought her, there's nothing wrong with convictions. But she elevated her conviction to theology. God did not say not touch it, to do not touch it. 
What she did was elevate her conviction to theology. If you do that, you will be in the same boat that she was in. And that's where the Pharisees were. Elevating conviction to theology. We must keep the two separate. It's okay to have convictions, but those cannot be imposed on somebody else. Likewise, when it is theology, that must be something that is judged. That must be something that is determined between believers so that we are pressing each other on towards godliness. And we'll see that when we get to verse 4. But we need to establish as a basis that Paul is not speaking of sin. Paul is not saying, do not condemn one another for sin. That's not what he's saying. And there's a key word to that. He says at the end of verse 1, he says, uh, but do not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. He's not saying do not pass judgment on his sin. He's saying do not pass judgment on his opinions. In other words, you and I should not elevate our conviction about sin uh, and our understanding of theology to the same level as we understand his opinions. Just like his opinions must not rise to the point of theology, so must we not rise, his, not cause his opinions to rise to that point. You see, it's two-sided. And we tend to do that in many ways. A modern and in some ways cultural example of this would be the consumption of alcohol. Scripture does not say that you cannot drink. It says that you cannot be drunk. And so when we divide this up, you have a certain group who says, therefore I will never drink, and they make that a theology. You may have that conviction, and praise God, you may have that conviction. I have that conviction. However, I'm not going to condemn someone who drinks, because I cannot, because my conviction is not theology. So that is a modern example of what is going on. And we see tremendous Christian freedom in Scripture. But unless you violate the clear teaching of not being drunk, it is not, it is, it is not anything more than a conviction. So that is, that is our example. And as such, we're going to move now into uh, not only just the first illustration, but responding to other believers. Notice what Paul says. He says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who, uh, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge. The one who who eats, for God has accepted him. So, how do we respond to other believers? Well, in light of who Christ is, in light of the theology of the first 11 chapters, Paul first instructs us to accept the one who is weaker in faith. The one who is weaker in faith doesn't uh, fully live out his Christian liberty. While we may understand that it is okay to consume alcohol, there are those like me who say, I'm never going to do it. Well, in this case, Paul would say, uh, I am in the weaker in faith because I'm not fully exercising my Christian liberty. And so, in this case, we must recognize that we are uh, not a description of the faith. Paul is not saying that your faith is, is weaker in value. What he is saying is, uh, it, it, or rather, it is a description, not a judgment. So it's not weaker in value. It's the same in value. It's just different in the way that it's described. And so that's what Paul is doing. Weaker and stronger does not mean that your faith is puny and weak in our modern vernacular. What he is saying is that yours isn't fully exercising. It's descriptive. It's not fully exercising the extent of your faith and the Christian liberty of your faith. But in verse 3, Paul points his finger to the issue. If you feel you are right, you want validation, correct? You want others to agree with you, correct? 
If you say, you know what, I have determined in my heart that I will never drink alcohol, then I'm going to surround myself with people who uh, don't drink alcohol because I want validation. That is sin, and Paul calls it as such. And it's equally sin to do it the other way. You see, the reality is, uh, we do not want to surround ourselves with people who only agree with us when it's an all-moral issue. Paul calls us out for that deceitful practice. If you are stronger in faith, do not regard with contempt, or literally, to look down on those who are not exercising it in the same way. He calls us out. He says you're not living right. If you are weaker in faith, do not judge or condemn the other. So it doesn't matter if you have a full exercise of your Christian liberty or partial exercise of your Christian liberty. Be convinced in your own mind that you are serving the Lord in the way that He has called you to do so and fellowship with everyone else. We have all seen and possibly experienced one or both groups ripped apart, ripping apart the fellowship, right? Maybe it's on the legalism side, the, as Paul would say, the, the weaker side. Ripping apart the church. We've seen the reckless abandoned side ripping apart the church. But you tell me, how is that Christian liberty? Is that what Paul wants to get to? Absolutely not. We each have our convictions. And we each must stand by them. But in issues not pertaining to sin and sinful activity, we cannot impose our opinions as law. Or we are not enjoying Christian liberty. You can say, you know what, These are, this is the way I'm going to live. And that's great. There's a lot of issues not condemned in Scripture that Paul says it's all profitable. It's, or it, it's all uh, within your liberty. Not all of it's profitable, uh, but it's within your liberty. You see, you have to establish your own convictions. But when the convictions are not issues of sin or theology, you cannot impose them upon somebody else. To do so will destroy your growth as a Christian, and it will destroy the church fellowship in which you belong. So what is the unifying factor? Because this is where this is where the rubber meets the road. This is Paul, Paul does this. He he establishes this point and he says, by the way, this is the standard. Notice the standard, verse four. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Here's the unifying factor. The unifying factor is, who do you serve? You serve the same Lord? You serve the same Christ? Yes. Then what is the problem? What is the problem? Paul establishes a baseline for the practice and the joy of Christian liberty in verse 4. In matters of opinion, it is not for us to judge each other. We need to make sure that we will rise in the presence of our Master. So here's the question. This conviction you have, this uh, conviction you feel passionately about, praise God, will that rise or fall in the presence of the Master? That's a pretty condemning statement. The conviction you have, is it is it true expression that your Master wants you to express? And I guarantee one thing, that if you are forcing your convictions, if you are elevating them to the point of theology, that will fall before your master. Now that's between you and him. Still, that cannot be imposed upon unless it violates sin. At which case, notice, Paul does not say that the believers are not to call each other out for sin. 
That's not what Paul is saying. We use this passage and say, well, you know, I know they've been sinning all this time, but God says not to judge. You know what? That is weak. That is wimpy. And that is not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, we must live according to the theology of the first 11 chapters. But in Christ, there's tremendous freedom. Hold each other accountable to the theology. Refuse the idle arguings of convictions. It doesn't matter. The scope of eternity, it depends whether you can stand or fall in the presence of your master. That's the unifying factor. Each one of us must go before our master. We must give an account. And do you know what? Paul gives a tremendous answer to prayer, a tremendous blessing. Notice what he says at the end of verse 4. He says this, And he will stand. He will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. You know what Paul says? No matter what your convictions are, you may be passionate. You may, you may view things in one way and say everybody should view that and ultimately you get to heaven and that should cause you to fall. You know what? We're all going to have those. We're all going to have those. But because of who Christ is, because of the theology of the first 11 chapters of this book, you will rise because Christ will ensure it. So Paul's point is don't beat each other up over it. Don't beat each other down. Don't separate fellowship all because of your own personal opinions and convictions when they have no bearing in theology. And this establishes the uniqueness of the body of Christ. We can be different and we can be unified because of Christ. You can go, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you can go from our culture into another culture and you feel like you're at home when you join in with a body of believers. I've been to Mexico. I've been to Brazil. I've been among other groups from uh, European nations, from uh, Russian satellite countries. And whenever I get among those who are believers, I feel like I'm right at home. I don't know a word they're saying, but I'm right at home in the body of Christ. There's a unifying factor in Christ. And we're establishing it right here. Let's move on. Who motivates your actions? Verses 5 and 6. And then we get into our second illustration here. The scripture says, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he uh, gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, uh, for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. The whole point is giving thanks to God. But... The understanding comes through the second illustration. And in the second illustration, Paul reverses the order. And in this case, it is the weaker one who acts. Previously, it was the uh, strong one who acted. It was the strong one who enjoyed the food. Well, in this case, it's the weaker one who's enjoying the days, and the stronger one is not enjoying these days. He's not setting them aside as being special. And Paul is speaking in light of these, especially these specific days in the Jewish calendar, uh, these feast days that they had set aside, part of their history, part of their theology. And he's saying, uh, these days are, are special days to them. And Paul's instruction is, do what you do and are fully convinced of. Because you are fully convinced of. Do what you are going to do. Celebrate those days that you feel fully convinced are the most important days. You know what? We, we wrestle with this in our culture. You know how we wrestle with it in our culture? Well, you know, Christmas had pagan roots. Right? 
for, well, you know, you know, uh, we should celebrate the uh, All Saints Day on November 1st. See, we do the same thing. We wrestle over special days. Paul says, whatever day you're convinced of, praise God. Be thoroughly convinced. If you don't want to participate in the events of All Saints Day, praise God. If you don't want to participate in the events of Christmas, praise God. Be convinced of that, though, because it is the one who judges you, it's the one who motivates your actions, that is the one who matters. That's the issue. That's the point. And the point of the illustrations is not to say that these are the only two issues that we're going to face. He's not saying that, well, you're only going to face your diet and you're only going to face your special days. No, he's using these two as an example. He's saying every time you come to the point of convictions, recognize and be convinced of your standing before God. And then don't impose those on somebody else unless it is theology. And don't rise your convictions to the point of theology. That's what Paul is getting to. That's what he wants us to understand. You see, rather to say when we face an issue of opinion, be convinced in your own heart, we tend to say, you know what? Um, When we face a point of conviction, you better believe what I want. And I've watched, I had a, a guy who came in as, uh, I was in the youth group of this church, my family wasn't attending this church at the time, we were attending another church, but I was there at the youth group. And a guy came in to be the music minister, and he brought with him severe convictions. And do you know what happened to that church? It ripped in half. Some of them said, yes, we agree with his convictions. And others said, no, we don't agree with his convictions. And they ripped in half over convictions. Over style of music. That's a conviction. And it ripped in half. You see, we must be convinced in our own heart of our opinions that God wants you to practice faith in this way. But in matters of all moral nature, we do not lord our convictions over one another. We celebrate our differences and we see others growing to maturity in Christ. And again, we come to the unifying factor. The unifying factor is who is your motivation? Verse 6. Who is your motivation? If you like your friend, but they have a weird conviction, study the Word of God. Figure out what the Word of God says and what it does not say. Your motivation ought to be the Lord. Within Him, you find the true joy of Christian liberty. Your friend is not your motivation. Your friend and his convictions do not matter in the light of eternity. Each believer must be convinced for himself or herself whether or not to regard some days as more sacred than others. Those who observe special days do it in honor to the Lord. Those who eat meat, praise God. I'll come over and eat meat with you. Do it unto the Lord. They bless the Lord for the provision He supplies. And at the same time, those who abstain from eating meat also do it in honor to the Lord. They too give thanks to the Lord. There is no difference in their motivation. Both conduct themselves in such a way as to please their master. Is that how you conduct yourself? Or are you worried about what your friend thinks? What the fellow believer thinks? If you're worried... Your motivation is in the wrong place. Your motivation is not in the Lord. If they challenge your conviction, say, you know what, I've got Christian liberty, and I can practice this. 
I won't impose it upon you. Don't impose yours upon me because this is an issue of Christian liberty. All right, so the final question. Who is your judge? Paul gets to the heart of the matter. This is, this is the unifying factor he's been working through, and now he establishes it as the heart of the matter. Verses 7 through 9 says this. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Our secular society has stolen Paul's statement in verse 7. Has it not? Notice what he says in verse 7. For uh, not one of us lives for himself. So all of a sudden you have these um, uh, trying to rebuild society. Trying to say, well, uh, you're, part, you're part of all of us. And so together, we'll work together and we'll establish a better area or a better country or a better county or a better city or a better program, whatever it happens to be. The culture has stolen this idea. But Paul's statement is, you are the Lord's possession. He's not saying anything about your neighbor. He's not saying anything about the body of Christ. What he's saying is, you are the Lord's possession. And he's saying, for not one of us lives for himself. In other words, your actions reflect upon your master. Your actions, your motivations, your heart desire reflects on your master. Is the way you're living what you want others to see Christ as? That's the point. That's the point. Paul is not saying that we are uh, each an island to ourselves. He is revealing that the life we live, we live in accountability to our Master. The life you live, you live in accountability to Him. Ultimately, the value of all events, all convictions of our entire life boils down to the acceptance of the one who owns you. See, this is balancing Christian liberty with slavery. This is a recognition that you are a slave of Christ. But previously to that, you were a slave to sin. Now, I don't know about you, but you're a slave to one thing or the other. I don't know about you, but I would much rather be a slave of Christ than a slave of sin. And praise God that as a believer, I'm a slave to Christ. Are you living life in light of that, or are you still living life as if you were a slave to sin? That's the question. That's the issue Paul is bringing to us. As a Christian, you've been freed from slavery to sin and death. The very breath you breathe ought to be in celebration of a joyful life in Christ. The eternal weight of sin has been removed. The internal consequences of sin has been removed. Your freedom has been provided for. The ultimate expression of joy and thankfulness is practiced when you live every breath in light of eternity. Every breath you take, you're saying, is this pleasing to the one who bought me out of the slave market of sin? Because every believer belongs to Christ, it is out of place for one servant to judge the convictions of another. You all have the same master. Not one of us is master over the other. You may be a boss over employees. Paul says it doesn't matter. We all have one master. This does not mean that we do not, again, challenge each other's sin. We are to press each other on towards godliness. We are to encourage godliness. And when it's an issue of sin, we challenge each other's faith. How dare we not 
How weak and selfish is that? To see someone sinning and not say anything about it. To not challenge them. But likewise, let's make sure that our convictions are not getting in the way. Because our convictions may be imposed as theology, and that is not what we are about as Christians. We are to spur each other on to further maturity in Christ. But we are to understand that all moral issues that each is living is there because of convictions, not because of theology. Verse 9 declares that the Lord is Lord of all, not just those who live in the present. Therefore, everything is in subjection to His judgment. Whether you are alive or whether you are dead, everything is in subjection to Him. And one day, Paul quotes as he's already done in Philippians, well, which he's going to do in a few years in Philippians, which we've already seen. He quotes Isaiah 45, here in Romans chapter 14, Philippians chapter 2. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. You know what? It doesn't matter if you are living or you are dead. You have a responsibility, and that is our next point, verse 10. Verse 10 says this. It says, but why, or but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It is not your role to look down your nose at a fellow believer over convictions. It's not your role. One of the greatest joys of Christian liberty is to see the growth and the maturity of fellow believers. I have watched this time and time and time again. As a a young man or a young woman comes to Christ as Savior, they begin to grow in the things of Christ. They establish convictions. The way the church handles that conviction will determine whether they continue to grow or whether they reject the church. You see, the church must teach them to observe their convictions as convictions. They must teach them to observe theology as theology. One of the greatest joys is to watch that young person in Christ, it doesn't matter what, any, what age they are, that young person in Christ, grow past that point and to grow on to maturity in Christ. We all grow we all change. Convictions once held, tested in the fire of daily living and by the uh, conviction of the Lord upon us, changes us as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. This ought to be a joyful event in the same manner as a graduation is for a high school senior or a wedding is for a precious young couple who thinks that they know it all. This is a joyous event. But Paul says this, each one is accountable. We've already quoted this. This is from Isaiah 45. It says, for for it is written, verse 11, As long as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. One day soon, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess. Paul's question and challenge is, are you living life in light of that day? Are you living life in light of that day? Are you ready to give an account? Are you ready to bow the knee before your Lord, who is your judge? Enjoy your freedom as Christians. 
Avoid the worthless condemnation of all moral convictions. Don't hold your personal convictions in the same manner as you hold faithful theology, faithful doctrine. There's a reason why Paul established 11 chapters of doctrine before he moved on to the practicality. You cannot live the Christian life without understanding the theology of the Christian life. Because you're going to turn convictions into theology. And with reckless abandon, you are going to cast off all that is your spiritual moorings. The precious joy of Christian liberty is found when we clearly identify who is our authority. When that has been established, we live in grace. In full understanding that every believer is a sinner saved by the same grace. It is much easier to enjoy unified Christian living when we avoid the legalism of past generations. And I will readily admit that, even though, by and large, I'm a product of those past generations. But at the same time, to avoid the reckless abandon of the present generation is wise as well. There's a balance. We need the theology. We don't need the convictions. We need the theology. Live as your time in the Word of God has convinced you to live. In full knowledge that one day soon, you will give an account to the one who has authority over it all. Is that how you live each and every day? Is that how you are motivated in Christ each and every day? Who is it that you serve? Who is it that motivates your actions? And who is it that serves as your judge? Paul says, It's the one who provided for your salvation while you were yet enemies of His. He's the one who continues the process through the Holy Spirit of sanctification in your life, causing you to be more and more like Christ and less and less like the world. He is the one that has guaranteed your glorification. In light of all of that, how can you not have compassion on people who need grace? How can you not have compassion on your neighbors who need salvation? And how can you not have compassion on the believer whose convictions are motivating them in ways that your convictions are not? We should have compassion on each other. We should be unified in the body of Christ, growing in grace and the knowledge of the truth. As we close in prayer, uh, we recognize that it was because of the sin in the First Corinthian church of disunity that they were coming before this table in an unworthy manner. And so because of the unity that is found in Christ, we are offering, or we have been offered a special opportunity to be unified as no other group. You're not going to walk into any other group, any other club, any other aspect, any other gathering of people and find the same joy of unification that you're going to find in the church. And I praise the Lord for that. As I close in prayer, I'm going to ask the men who are helping with communion to come forward. And we will take before this table, hopefully in a worthy manner. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the privilege of seeing Christian liberty lived out. And as we're going to continue to study this in the weeks ahead, I pray that you would help us to understand what is liberty, what is theology, and what are convictions. Help us to faithfully practice our theology. Help us to hold with passion the convictions for ourselves, And let us refrain from using it or holding it against somebody else. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to grow in unity as a body of believers. 
teach us to observe what it means to enjoy Christian liberty and dynamic Christian unity. That your name would be glorified in all of these things. Lord, I praise you for the liberty that is ours. As we will get into later, I think of the many things, the many regulations and aspects of the law that we are not underneath. And I praise you for the immense liberty as Christians. I pray that we would use it as you would have us to use it. That we would stand before our Master because you made us to stand before our Master. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. I pray that as we come before this table before me, that we would take this table in a manner worthy of the one who died for us, who paid the price, who allowed us to sample an aspect of the uh, new covenant, the promise of eternal life. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today that do not know you as Savior, who have been challenged uh, by your word today, that you would bring them to yourself, that they would come to know you, and that your name would be glorified in that as well. In your son's name we pray. Amen.